Section 23 of On Christian Doctrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josip. On Christian Doctrine by Augustine of Hippo. Translated by J. F. Shaw. Section 23. Chapter 22. The necessity of variety in style. But we are not to suppose that it is against rule to mingle those various styles. On the contrary, every variety of style should be introduced so far as is consistent with good taste. For when we keep monotonously to one style, we fail to retain the hearer's attention. But when we pass from one style to another, the discourse goes off more gracefully, even though it extend to greater length. Each separate style, again, has varieties of its own which prevent the hearer's attention from cooling or becoming languid. We can bear the subdued style, however, longer without variety than the majestic style, for the mental emotion which it is necessary to stir up in order to carry the hearer's feelings with us when once it has been sufficiently excited, the higher the pitch to which it is raised can be maintained the shorter time and therefore we must be on our guard lest in striving to carry to a higher point the emotion we have excited we rather lose what we have already gained but after the interposition of matter that we have to treat in a quieter style we can return with good effect to that which must be treated forcibly thus making the tide of eloquence to ebb and flow like the sea it follows from this that the majestic style if it is to be long continued ought not to be unvaried, but should alternate at intervals with the other styles. The speech or writing as a whole, however, being referred to that style which is the prevailing one. Chapter 23. How the various styles should be mingled. Now it is a matter of importance to determine what style should be alternated with what other, and the places where it is necessary that any particular style should be used. In the majestic style, for instance, it is always, or almost always, desirable that the introduction should be temperate, and the speaker has it in his discretion to use the subdued style even where the majestic would be allowable, in order that the majestic, when it is used, may be the more majestic by comparison, and may, as it were, shine out with greater brilliance from the dark background again whatever may be the style of the speech or writing when knotty questions turn up for solution accuracy of distinction is required and this naturally demands the subdued style and accordingly this style must be used in alternation with the other two styles whenever questions of that sort turn up just as we must use the temperate style no matter what may be the general tone of the discourse whenever praise or blame is to be given without any ulterior reference to the condemnation or acquittal of any one or to obtaining the concurrence of any one in a course of action in the majestic style then and in the quiet likewise both the other two styles occasionally find place the temperate style on the other hand not indeed always but occasionally needs the quiet style for example when as i have said a knotty question comes up to be settled or when some points that are susceptible of ornament are left unadorned and expressed in the quiet style 
in order to give greater effect to certain exuberances, as they may be called, of ornament. But the temperate style never needs the aid of the majestic, for its object is to gratify, never to excite the mind. Chapter 24 The Effects Produced by the Majestic Style if frequent a vehement applause follows a speaker, we are not to suppose on that account that he is speaking in the majestic style, for this effect is often produced both by the accurate distinctions of the quiet style and by the beauties of the temperate. The majestic style, on the other hand, frequently silences the audience by its impressiveness, but calls forth their tears. For example, when at Cesarea in Mauritania I was dissuading the people from that civil, or worse than civil, war, which they called Caterva, for it was not fellow citizens merely, but neighbors, brothers, fathers and sons even, who divided into two factions and armed with stones, fought annually at a certain season of the year for several days continuously, every one killing whomsoever he could. I strove with all the vehemence of speech that I could command, to root out and drive from their hearts and lives an evil so cruel and inveterate. It was not, however, when I heard their applause, but when I saw their tears, that I thought I had produced an effect. For the applause showed that they were instructed and delighted, but the tears that they were subdued. And when I saw their tears I was confident, even before the event proved it, that this horrible and barbarous custom, which had been handed down to them from their fathers and their ancestors of generations long gone by, and which, like an enemy, was besieging their hearts, or rather had complete possession of them, was overthrown, and immediately that my sermon was finished I called upon them with heart and voice to give praise and thanks to God. And lo, with the blessing of Christ, it is now eight years or more since anything of the sort was attempted there. In many other cases besides, I have observed that men show the effect made on them by the powerful eloquence of a wise man, not by clamorous applause so much as by groans, sometimes even by tears, finally by change of life. The quiet style, too, has made a change in many, but it was to teach them what they were ignorant of, or to persuade them of what they thought incredible, not to make them do what they knew they ought to do, but were unwilling to do. To break down hardness of this sort, speech needs to be vehement. Praise and censure, too, when they are eloquently expressed, even in the temperate style, produce such an effect on some, that they are not only pleased with the eloquence of the encomiums and censures, but are led to live so as themselves to deserve praise, and to avoid living so as to incur blame. But no one would say that all who are thus delighted change their habits in consequence, whereas all who are moved by the majestic style act accordingly, and all who are taught by the quiet style know or believe a truth which they were previously ignorant of. Chapter 25 How the Temperate Style is to be Used from all this we may conclude that the end arrived at by the two styles last mentioned is the one which it is most essential for those who aspire to speak with wisdom and eloquence to secure. On the other hand, what the temperate style properly aims at, namely to please by beauty of expression, is not in itself an adequate end. 
but when what we have to say is good and useful and when the hearers are both acquainted with it and favorably disposed towards it so that it is not necessary either to instruct or persuade them beauty of style may have its influence in securing their prompter compliance or in making them adhere to it more tenaciously for as the function of all eloquence whichever of these three forms it may assume is to speak persuasively and its object is to persuade an eloquent man will speak persuasively whatever style he may adopt but unless he succeeds in persuading his eloquence has not secured its object now in the subdued style he persuades his hearers that what he says is true in the majestic style he persuades them to do what they are aware they ought to do but do not in the temperate style he persuades them that his speech is elegant and ornate but what use is there in attaining such an object as this last they may desire it who are vain of their eloquence and make a boast of panegyrics and such like performances where the object is not to instruct the hearer or to persuade him to any course of action but merely to give him pleasure we however ought to make that end subordinate to another namely the effecting by this style of eloquence what we aim at effecting when we use the majestic style for we may by the use of this style persuade men to cultivate good habits and give up evil ones if they are not so hardened as to need the vehement style or if they have already begun a good course we may induce them to pursue it more zealously and to persevere in it with constancy accordingly even in the temperate style we must use beauty of expression not for ostentation but for wise ends not contenting ourselves merely with pleasing the hearer but rather seeking to aid him in the pursuit of the good end which we hold out before him chapter twenty six in every style the orator should aim at perspicuity beauty and persuasiveness now in regard to the three conditions i laid down a little while ago as necessary to be fulfilled by any one who wishes to speak with wisdom and eloquence namely perspicuity beauty of style and persuasive power we are not to understand that these three qualities attach themselves respectively to the three several styles of speech one to each so that perspicuity is a merit peculiar to the subdued style beauty to the temperate and persuasive power to the majestic on the contrary all speech whatever its style ought constantly to aim at and as far as possible to display all these three merits for we do not like even what we say in the subdued style to pall upon the hearer and therefore we would be listened to not with intelligence merely but with pleasure as well again why do we enforce what we teach by divine testimony except that we wish to carry the hearer with us that is to compel his assent by calling in the assistance of him of whom it is said thy testimonies are very sure and when any one narrates a story even in the subdued style what does he wish but to be believed but who will listen to him if he do not arrest attention by some beauty of style and if he be not intelligible is it not plain that he can neither give pleasure nor enforce conviction the subdued style again in its own naked simplicity when it unravels questions of very great difficulty and throws an unexpected light upon them 
when it warms out and brings to light some very acute observations from a quarter whence nothing was expected when it seizes upon and exposes the falsity of an opposing opinion which seemed at its first statement to be unassailable especially when all this is accompanied by a natural unsought grace of expression and by a rhythm and balance of style which is not ostentatiously obtruded but seems rather to be called forth by the nature of the subject this style so used frequently calls forth applause so great that one can hardly believe it to be the subdued style for the fact that it comes forth without either ornament or defence and offers battle in its own naked simplicity does not hinder it from crushing its adversary by weight of nerve and muscle and overwhelming and destroying the falsehood that opposes it by the mere strength of its own right arm how explain the frequent and vehement applause that waits upon men who speak thus except by the pleasure that truth so irresistibly established and so victoriously defended naturally affords wherefore the christian teacher and speaker ought when he uses a subdued style to endeavour not only to be clear and intelligible but to give pleasure and to bring home conviction to the hearer eloquence of the temperate style also must in the case of the christian orator be neither altogether without ornament nor unsuitably adorned nor is it to make the giving of pleasure its sole aim which is all it professes to accomplish in the hands of others but in its encomiums and censures it should aim at inducing the hearer to strive after or hold more firmly by what it praises and to avoid or renounce what it condemns on the other hand without perspicuity this style cannot give pleasure and so the three qualities perspicuity beauty and persuasiveness are to be sought in this style also beauty of course being its primary object again when it becomes necessary to stir and sway the hearer's mind by the majestic style and this is always necessary when he admits that what you say is both true and agreeable and yet is unwilling to act accordingly you must of course speak in the majestic style but who can be moved if he does not understand what is said and who will stay to listen if he receives no pleasure wherefore in this style too when an obdurate heart is to be persuaded to obedience you must speak so as to be both intelligible and pleasing if you would be heard with a submissive mind End of section twenty three